So we're in a series right now called Kinfolk, and this series is about belonging. It's about who do you belong to and whom belongs to you. And the, the name comes from an old term that some people still use today uh, that describes family. But it doesn't just describe family in terms of a nuclear family, the way a lot of uh, us in America live right now with with just the immediate family of maybe a husband and a wife and some children or uh, a single parent and a child or uh, something like that. But um, it, it encompasses a sense of family that goes beyond that structure into a complex and strong interrelated web of relationships that would constitute something called kin. And this is the way human beings have survived and thrived and loved for most of human history. And these large extended families built of things beyond just immediate blood relationships. Oh, I'm, I'm not following you. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. And uh, the... The different tribes that have existed uh, did so through the mainly through tracing it back to one single founder, one single patriarch or matriarch, um, and, and something that happened there that started this tribe, this community. And Christianity is similar to that in that we trace our kinship and our connection to one another through the person of Jesus. But the way that kinship is different in Christianity is that this is not a blood relationship. It's not through DNA being passed down, not through physical DNA and blood being passed down, but it's through this sort of mystical union of being saved and being covered in the grace of God through the person of Jesus. And this means that the community of the church, the kinship of the church, has different relational tasks to grapple with. And one of those tasks is, how can a group, a tribe, a community be unified together and still be so distinct and different in so many ways on individual and on uh, nuclear family type levels. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And the question that we're going to answer uh, related to that is, uh, what is it that you don't gotta do? That's the title of the sermon, what you don't gotta do. And I wanna start here with a memory that I had. I can't remember where I saw a picture recently. Maybe it might have been a yearbook or something somebody shared on Facebook or something like that. But I saw a picture from my high school. And I saw something that was the, the, the tackiest, most ridiculous thing that I'd totally forgotten about. And that's pajama pants became really popular when I was in high school. But but not to be at home in your pajamas like some of you are online right now, but to go to school in pajama pants. 
And like, it was like an audible, I didn't know winces could be audible, but that's what I did when I saw those pictures. I'm like, when did we ever think that that was a good idea or cool? Or why did we? We obviously did, because I'm looking at this undeniable evidence in front of me. And the answer is, it, it, it never looked good. It always looked bad. But everybody around us, somebody started doing it. And like, the lemmings that some high school kids are, we all started, myself included, started thinking it's a really cool thing to wear pajama pants to school. And, and herein lies the problem with being human beings in some kind of cosmic relationship that the church is, is we have this incredible need and desire to be accepted through conformity. To, like, to make ourselves as similar as we can to the people around us in hopes that we'll find acceptance, that we'll find uh, our sense of, of place and belonging through doing that. But the, the, the thing here is, is, is Paul is saying something so different than that. And, and part of the reason is because in this letter in 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul helped to start this church, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 18, and he, he's been hearing some of the problems that the church is having. And, and they're having various problems. They're having problems trying to figure out uh, uh, sexual mores. They're having problems trying to figure out uh, things about um, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, uh, what the structure of the community looks like, who should you follow, like if you got this favorite preaching person, like forming these little subgroups of like, well, I like Apollos and I like Paul's teachings and all these kinds of things. And, and one of the things that's coming up is that Paul's responding to here is this problem of diversity and unity. And, and how, how do you represent and keep and honor each individual's contributions and gifts and remain in unity with one another at the same time. It's a big problem. It's a problem human beings have never quite fully figured out how to do for any length of time. Uh, we, we live in an experiment of trying to do some of that in the democracy idea experiment that is America and uh, it has some pretty big ups and downs. So here's the thing. We try to either conform or we try to get others to conform for a sense of belonging. And Paul's denying that, rejecting that here. And he's saying that the main reason to reject that is because of the nature of God. And and here's what happens, though. When we, when we do live and we acquiesce that way to one another's uh, whims and desires, it actually creates systems of oppression. Uh, so it's really important for us to continuously think critically about the uniqueness that each of us brings. It can also bring systems of depression because things get really boring when everybody starts to think wearing pajama pants in public is okay. Sorry if you do that. So let's take a look at the answers here that Paul is giving, starting in verse 12. He says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, 
and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So Paul starts with this very difficult concept to just grasp of a sort of an either or type of thing. He, he starts with uh, the unity within God as we understand God and says that the same unity exists in the body, which is the church, which is the metaphor he's using for the church. And he says, you know, just like a body has different parts like hands and feet, it's still one body. And this is on a macro uh, spiritual level, what he's trying to start us with is thinking about the nature of God, the revealed nature of God in, uh, in the Christian tradition, in the scriptures, in the person of Jesus. And that is that you've got these three representations, these three presences of God. You've got the God the Father, you've got Jesus, and you've got the Holy Spirit. And that while there is distinction between those three, that God the Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, that somehow the three personalities are all God. And so you have differences and you have unity even within the person of God. There's this amazing uh, Greek word that uh, was started, started to come about and be used in, in theological cir- circles all the way back in the, 16, or in the 600s. And the, the Greek term is uh, perichoresis, perichoresis. And it means a circular dance. It means having a circle dance. And that was the term that they came up to describe the nature of God, of the three personalities of God, the Holy Spirit and Jesus in communion together, being distinct, but having this unity together, not a hierarchy of where one was greater than the other and told the other everything to do, but a circular dance in which these three personalities that made up God interacted with one another. This would have just shattered any other notions of God that most of the people of Corinth could conceive of. The gods that they knew of were just like them. They fought each other, they got jealous of each other, they killed each other, they like took each other's children, they got revenge on each other, they were always trying to one-up one another. And so this idea of a non-hierarchical unified God that also had diversity and distinctions was just simply not easily comprehensible, nor is it for us today. And so, and so Paul starts here and he says this, this is something we are still grasping at being able to live out as the church in the 21st century today, where we think we are so enlightened and so progressive on so many things or so much like uh, what we think, how good it used to be. He says in verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. And then he describes this. He says, whether Jews or Gentiles. He doesn't say you are no longer a Jew or a Gentile. And he says, whether slave or free. And then he he follows it up with, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And then he goes back to his metaphor and says, so even 
though the body uh, is not made up of one, uh, so even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So here's what Paul isn't saying. You got to erase all of your differences and distinctions or ignore them and pretend like they're not there so that you can be a part of this group. This is not an acquiescence to sameness. This is not a folding of your personal uh, life experience of the color of your skin, of the background that you came from, or any of those types of things, or your gender, or any of those types of things. This is saying, Paul is saying, I see you as who you are, as male or female, as black or white, as rich or poor, if coming from hard times or coming from wealth, and that is who you are. And at the same time, you are also part of the same unified body. I mean, your brain just wants to break when you really try to think about the implications of if we actually interacted with each other in that way. If we let each other be who we were and not tried to force one another to be what we felt most comfortable with, and said, and yet we are unified in the cosmic mystical reality of being part of the savior of the entire cosmos. Y'all missed it. I'm up here all by myself. You missed it. You missed it. Come on now. Amen, amen. All right. That's a big, incredible idea that I would like to see uh, more and more lived out in my lifetime in our local congregation. So it's, uh, you know, there was this time in, in America recently where, and I think mainly it came about after Obama was elected and people started saying, well, we're in a post-racial America, right? And, and it was like, well, we, you know, I don't see, I don't see skin color and, I, you know, like you're just, you're just you and, and all that kind of thing. You're not black to me, you're just Jamin or you're just whoever. And that was our attempt, that was some of America's attempt at trying to create unity, but without the diversity, right? And so we got to this place where we thought we'd figured out how to be together, but it was through wiping away the God-given distinctions and realities of who we are. Our church is egalitarian, meaning we have both men and women in the highest levels of leadership. But you will never hear me say that, and I, and I, and I stopped somebody when they were describing it. I was meeting with some friends. They were like, well, egalitarian means men and women are the same. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Men and women are not the same. They can occupy equal amounts of authority and leadership ability and skills and strengths but part of what makes egalitarian leadership so powerful and beneficial is that the way that women lead is so incredibly significant that when it's only men leading, we miss 50% of what could be seen and done and known and understood. So if you hear nothing else for the rest of the morning, hear this, within the church, the, the, one of the founders of the church, Paul, was not saying in order for us to be a unified body together, we need to erase and, and, and pretend the distinctions between us are not there. No, it's, it's far, uh, it's, it's the absolute opposite of that. 
It is what is different about each of us that makes a fully functioning body of Christ in the world that can do what it was made and designed to do. Amen. Somebody, I'm an amen myself. Paul said in, uh, in the beginning of this book, as he was describing how this community came together, he's like, I want to remind you, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, brothers and sisters, that I want you to think of what you were when you were called, that not many of you were wise by human standards. That's slick, isn't it, the way he said that? He's like, y'all weren't that smart. And he just kind of puts a little spin on it. So it's, so it's kind of like, wait a minute, what, what did he just say? What did he just say about us? And, and then he says, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. And see, he's addressing this problem because so many of the folks in this congregation in Corinth, they were, they were so excited to kind of have like a, a chance to exercise uh, who they were, but they didn't understand this idea about, about how God works in this, in this circular dance. And so they were relating it in the terms of authority that they understood. They were trying to talk over each other. They were trying to one-up one another because that was the only way that they knew that the world worked is somebody has to be on top and somebody has to be on bottom. And Paul's reminding them, he's saying, hey, look, this is not the place for you to try to figure out how to one-up everybody else and be better than them or figure out how to make somebody feel lower than you, that there's something greater that can happen here in this uh, congregation. It's different in our culture in some ways. Uh, in the world of Corinth, it was really clear. Like if you walk down the street, you could tell by how people interacted with each other, what they thought of each other really easily. It's like, well, you're a slave and you're a woman, so you're only allowed to be over here, you'll be able to do that. Or you're a Roman citizen, so I'll shake your hand. And you're a Jew, so like, if I wanna get you to, get you to like carry my pack, if I'm a soldier or something, I can do that. Or It was really clear how people distinguished hierarchies. But in our country, we sort of pretend like we don't have those things, even though we do. We, in, in, our, in our public rhetoric, we try to, um, especially leaders who benefit from the hierarchy, we try to pretend like, it's, like everybody is equal, ignoring the pay scale gaps, right? Or, or the incarceration rates of certain minorities, or where the destructive power plant, which community that gets put in. And, you know, uh, this, uh, this author, um, this guy named uh, Paul Betty, he wrote, he wrote a lot of novels, and one of them's called The Sellout. He, he says it better than I could. Um, he's talking about people getting uh, promotions. And uh, he says, um, when talking about the acknowledgement that, a, that the better man got the promotion, even though deep down you and they both know that you are really the better man and that the best man is the woman on the second floor. Right? 
So there's this idea, oh yeah, it's a fair race and everybody's getting the same kind of shake and it's just, it just so happens that certain people uh, that so, uh, look a certain way and talk a certain way end up on top every time, right? It just so happens. But that's not the reality. So Paul's first point in this passage is to tell people we're gonna do two things. We're gonna learn what it means to be unified together by looking at the, the revealed picture of God that we have received. And we're gonna do it not through ignoring or denying our distinctions and our differences, but embracing the diversity that we have in our midst. So we have this opportunity as we come into this place, as we take communion together, as we baptize believers, as we gather and worship and learn and serve together to be further and further mystically connected to this beautiful picture of the body of Christ with hands and feet and, and noses and all kind of stuff. It's not just a big ball of ears as Paul said more eloquently. So we, we struggle when this doesn't happen as a culture, when our gifts aren't equally elevated. And Paul talks about that as we pick this up in verse 15. It says, now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. I've tried different things over the years, uh, especially in my, in my young, uh, younger days, late uh, teens and early 20s. One of those things was I thought, you know, I think what I'm, what I'm gonna do is become a stuntman. And I'm, gonna, I'm looking up stuntman school, yeah, that's right. And I, I remember some of you've heard this story, but it's the only time I can remember my dad ever begging me for anything. And he was begging me to at least get my associate's degree if I was hell-bent on going to stuntman school, right? There's other things that I've, I've, I've tried to be throughout the years. One of those things was an extrovert. I, I, I thought I could be an extrovert. It sounds, it sounds crazy, uh, but you guys have probably done dumber stuff than that. <laughs> I thought... I thought I could change and I could just like go out and just be like super outgoing. And then I was exhausted and grumpy all the other times uh, in between that. What I was trying to do in different ways, I was trying to bring this paradigm of the world into my life and live my life that way, that, um, that, that there were certain skills and gifts you had to have to be exalted or to belong or to be seen as kind of like the best person you could be. And when we do that, we bring this kind of spiritually homeless, uh, Christless sort of existence into, into how we work and operate. That somehow that we thought, man, like, 
God just really, really screwed up when he made me. That like all of my faults and things, I gotta figure out how to become somebody else so that I can get the love and the connection that I'd really like to get. Uh, You know, one of the things that this passage is antithetical to is something we praise almost more than anything else, meaning very different from, uh, is individualism. It's like just being like super independent, like super on your own, like just doing it by yourself and, and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And we, we then celebrate people who look like they've done that, right? The people that we have zero chance of being like. We have like 0.0000009 chance, like these celebrities and stuff. Like you ain't gonna be, you know, uh, Taylor Swift. Yeah, I know some of you wanna be like Taylor Swift. I know. Will Smith. Chance, I have no chance of being Chance the Rapper. Like he's got the best flows out there, in my opinion. And I I can't be like him. Uh, and, And part of that is we've got this idea that we've been conditioned to understand is, is so good, uh, is this idea of if we could strike out on our own, if we could show the world that us by ourselves can do anything in the world and we can do it better than anybody else, then we'll finally belong. Then we'll, we'll finally feel like we matter and that we're loved and that we're worthy of some things. And some of us right now are like, yeah, I tried that, but like a year into the pandemic, I'm like, I don't even want to go out of my house anymore, so I'm straight, like I'm going to give up on all that right now. But here's the thing. Here's, here's what's at, at the bottom of that. Here's, here's what we're left with. Here's what the people of Corinth were struggling with. They were just trying to compare themselves to one another in order to understand their worth, their value. Like, what do I bring? What, how can I show that I have the right stuff And the way that I can do that most readily that we as human beings love to do is to say, well, look who's below me. Look who doesn't do this thing, this skill or this gift is as good as I do. That's why the celebrity status is so attractive because everybody is metaphorically below you. And we imagine if we could get there, then we'd finally be at peace. Then we'd finally be at rest. And yet there's recovery centers all over the country especially in like places like Nashville and outside of LA, ranches and things like that where celebrities and neurosurgeons have to be sent all the time because they got to the top of the ladder and they can't stop drinking and they can't stop doing drugs and they can't stop sleeping around with, with hundreds of people because the hole inside of them just got bigger and more and more inescapable the higher up they got with nobody else to look down on. It's a broken system because we're not meant to be independent. We're not meant to be by ourselves. We're supposed to be part of a body. We're not supposed to be like the Adams family. Wait, I thought we were supposed to be a family. No, I'm just talking about the, the hand, right? The hand in Adams family, was it called it? Right, he just ran around by himself, just a hand. That's you when you're Taylor Swift. You're just a hand floating around, hey? That's, that's a sentence I'd never thought I'd say. All right, so in, in verse 21, Paul keeps unpacking this idea. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. See, when we despise the unique way that God created us because our culture didn't value the way it was, or maybe our family didn't know how to value uh, the way way that we were, this narrative forms in our head and we don't just start to see ourselves that way, but we actually start to evaluate other people the same way. We start to look at other people and say, well, they don't fit the narrative either. They're not extroverted. They don't play um, uh, uh, platinum selling songs about breaking up with other celebrities, right? So they don't fit it either. So they're not worth uh, as much either. Um, Some other examples like uh, just people who cry more than others, men or women, like that's not that's not like a really cool thing in, in our, a lot of our culture or people that do certain kind of jobs. Like, oh man, we love to beat up on teachers, don't we? Right? Like teachers, they're, they're the world's problems, right? If we could just get the right kind of teacher in there or maybe, maybe, maybe you don't like athletes. Yeah, maybe, maybe you don't like non-athletes. Or maybe it's conservatives that are the problem or liberals that are the problem. Uh, there's a, a book, this, this woman, uh, Susan Cain, she wrote this book about being an introvert. Yeah, yeah, uh, Brenda, I thought about you uh, when, when I thought about this book. It's called Quiet, it's, but it's not, it doesn't have an exclamation mark. It has two, two, a, a semicolon after it, or, or a colon, that's a colon. Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. You can already hear like her frustration just even in the title. Like, just shut up. <laughs> She's, it, when, it, one of the points she makes here, this quote, it's, there's zero correlation between being the best talker and having the best ideas, right? Like the whole book, she's helping make the point that introverts are really important to have in society. And if you are one, let me affirm you, let me show you how much you belong, how much these loudmouth extroverts need you in their lives. And, and this is just kind of what came up to me as I was thinking about, as Paul's talking all this stuff about ears and noses and eyes, I started thinking about this idea and like, how can we get out of this pajama pants pageantry sort of situation? Because it becomes really toxic. Uh, when we highlight certain types of skills to the neglect of others, right? When we don't have enough time to think and we keep uh, electing and championing people who just do run their mouths. In verse 23, Paul says, he says, there's these parts that we think are less honorable, but we treat them with special honor. And that the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. He's talking about the body, like, you're, like the metaphor of a person's body. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. Th- this is a great metaphor. It, 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 it um, makes a lot of sense, but... It's really hard when we translate it into, into real life and reality. And uh, just to be transparent, I have short toes. My toes aren't that long. 
And for a long time, I didn't, have a, I didn't have a problem with that until somebody pointed it out one day. See, I thought everybody else had long toes. And especially like I, when I'd see other guys' toes, I'd think like, Man, those toes don't look right. They're so long and they bend and stuff. Like it's a whole like another part to it there. And I thought I had really pretty toes. I thought I had nice toes. And then one day... Um, this nice young lady, a, a, a friend of mine's spouse, she was like, you, you got short toes. Why are your toes so short? And I, I was been very self-conscious about the length of my toes since then. So when I'm thinking about Paul's analogy, I'm thinking, but yeah, but you don't got short toes like me, right? Hey, but I do have incredible balance. So add that, try to add that up, right? Short toes, incredible balance. I mean, I could do this all day long. Look, look. <laughs> so it's easy. It's easy to talk about this, but the pain of not having the thing that seems to be what's valued the most is really hard. It's really painful sometimes. But the secret, part of the secret lies in the connection that we could have and do have through Christ, that we actually don't, any of us, have what we need by ourselves. Just like the extroverts think everything's happening because they keep talking, but it's not. It's because all the introverts who are done talking are actually working around them, right? We need each other. Susan Cain, one more time, she says this, the secret to life is to put yourself in the right lighting, for some, it's Broadway spotlight. For others, a lamplit desk. Use your natural powers of persistence, concentration, and insight to do work you love and work that matters. Solve problems, make art, think deeply. And later she says, everyone shines given the right lighting. This is an important task, and I am coming to my conclusion this is an important task within the body of Christ. It's something that takes all different kinds of people. It takes people who are more thoughtful and reserved, who think and who notice things more than those of us who are louder, who kind of bust through situations and make lots of noise in the process to see where are you at? That's why discipleship never really works well when it's a one size fits all when it's just learn this curriculum. Because then you got a lot of people that have learned a curriculum. And I don't think that's discipleship, I think that's public education, right? So each of us is in a different place in life. Some of us are new parents, some of us are old parents, some of us aren't parents, some of us are single, some of us are married, some of us don't know if we're gonna do anything except for have a cat, right? We're all in different places in life. And that requires us to figure out for one another, what's the right kind of light that that person needs to shine in the body of Christ? What's, what, what are we missing out on if we don't cultivate and make the right room for that person to be not less of themselves and more like us or you or them, but to be themselves? So 
I'm pretty passionate about this topic, um, but we're, we're running short on time. And what I want to do, uh, rather than talk about the rest of this passage, is just talk about some of the gifts and leadership that we have in our, our congregation that feels a little scattered right now. And um, we, we haven't all fully been together, but I've seen the congregation and I've watched you all leading and I've seen so many different ways that individuals in our congregation are expressing who they are and how that is creating the type of place I'm proud to be a part of at Christ City, part of this local body and expression. For example, like uh, uh, Tori, Tori and Vera today in hospitality, like the way that they connect with people, make people feel warm and welcome and uh, to just create a space where people feel like, yeah, I can, I can be here. I can belong here. Somebody sees me. Somebody notices me. They're, they're not just good at connecting people. They have a kindness and attentiveness that, that goes with it. I think about um, Rachel Remington, who uh, has really great gifts of leadership and administration as her time serving as elder, the way that she helped to lead and steward the responsibility of those meetings and Mandy's leadership and administrative skills and organizational skills as well. So important, so needed. I think of people like Andrew Best, I think uh, Jake Wig and Mark Minyard, people who they, they're not so quick to say a bunch of things, but they are quick to think deeply about things, to ask good questions, to sit on information and to really just like let it marinate and soak. And then out of their mouth comes a lot of wisdom. I think about Kara Best too, who's got a really discerning voice, but manages to do it in a really positive way. So like she can, she can tell you, we, we might need to change course here, but you feel really encouraged about it at the same time. I think about people like the Hansons, Linda and Chris Hansen, who have the uh, pandemic-proof story group in our church, right? That's, their story group just kept going, and they have this quiet, pastoral, attentive concern for people in their care. And by the way, their story group's closed, I'm sorry to say, right now. They, they, they're full, pandemic-proof, I'm telling you. I think about people like Josh and Janina leading us in worship, having kids, being pregnant again, uh, going through all kinds of different things in their life. And they're just here, like they're talented, yes, but more than that, they, they just, like the storms come and they're just still there. There's just the consistency and the perseverance that they have. I think about Stacy Martin, who's just full of prophetic words. I think about Lonnie and Ben Higdon and Brandon Martin, who are just incredible servants. They can just knock out all these different types of tasks and do things without, um, with just like that. Like it's just part of who they are. There's so many people. I, I mean, I could I could list off almost everybody, um, and I'm sorry, I'm going to leave some people out. Uh, but I think pizza is calling our name pretty soon here. I mean, communion, and then pizza is calling our name here. But my point is this, that we are 
in the mystical body of Christ together. And that is a body. It is not a bunch of hands or decapitated feet. And that some of the things that some of the gifts that we have need more cultivation than others, just like Paul said it there, and that there's room for it. And it's not just like an obligatory room, like, oh, we'll make some space for you because oh, we feel bad for you. No, it's because we need you. Because you are, you're an ear. <laughs> you are a short toe. You're needed. So as we come and partake of the body of Christ, Let's do it with celebration and thanksgiving for the diversity within the unity that we have together in Christ. Let's pray.